Uh, if you would turn to First John uh, chapter 1, we're in a series called Living in the Light. And as you're turning to First John, I, I got a lot of questions today uh, on whether or not I was preaching. And little did I know that when the preacher goes casual, uh, people think that, that he's not preaching. I, I didn't know one of the qualifications of being a preacher was uh, wearing a suit and a tie. Uh, but I learned that some of you uh, get a little bit concerned when they, uh, when they see a shirt that's uh, uh, untucked. I got a new shirt and I uh, didn't feel like a suit today. And uh, so, uh, so I went with this. And little did I think I was going to have to explain myself. But after the second dozen people asked me about it, I thought I better speak to that. So uh, we're in a series that we've entitled Living in the Light, looking at the book of 1 John. And uh, we're going to be in this book uh, for some time to come. And uh, I'm excited about what the Lord is going to teach us in this series. Uh, we're going to learn what it means to live in the light of Jesus Christ, what it means and, and what characteristics should be seen in the life of a believer. We call ourselves Christians, uh, we sing Christian songs, we say that uh, we hold to Christian beliefs, but uh, can people see from our lives that we are living in the light? Do people see us living like Jesus Christ? And that's what the book of 1 John is all about, living the life of a believer. Now, the Apostle John, uh, as we've talked about in the last couple weeks, as a way of review, is addressing a group of Christians who are under the attack of false teachers. Uh, during uh, the time, about 30-some years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, false teachers come into the church and they start teaching these new thoughts about Jesus, these new thoughts about how to get close to God. And as a result of that, they began uh, to infiltrate the church and as a result, allow people to stray away from the core doctrines of the church, uh, to uh, tell people that it was okay if they sinned, uh, because uh, what you did in your body wasn't all that important. It was the soul or the spirit uh, is what mattered. And so in this letter and in this series, we want to look and investigate at what John is teaching them. And observe how maybe how false teaching has crept into our society, in our culture. That even though we call ourselves Christians, are we listening to some of the things of this world uh, that tell us to do something contrary to the Word of God? And so today I want to look at three of those claims those false teachers made in verses 6 through 10. And I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word. And I'm going to start at verse 1 of chapter 1 and we're going to read uh, through verse 10. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that which... Uh, to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His Word has no place in our lives. Father God, we come before You once again. And in a sign of our dependent need for You, we bow before You. And Lord, as Your followers, as Your people, we recognize that we don't always live in the light. No doubt this last week there have been times uh, that myself and, and those that are hearing these words have found themselves living in darkness. Though we know what is right, though we know that which is holy, because of temptation, because of the ways of this world, instead of choosing that which is right and holy, we choose that which appeals to our flesh and appeals to uh, the sinful nature that resides within us. But Lord, I thank You for this passage. I thank You that this passage reminds us that it's either light or darkness when it comes to You. That we can't be lukewarm. We can't find ourselves riding the fence. And Lord, yet I'm so glad that Your Word doesn't say we have to be perfect. Because we're going to learn today from Your Word two times that You say when we sin that we can seek forgiveness and that You will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Oh Father, that we would live in light of that promise. That though we sin, and we will sin, that we would keep short accounts with You so that we can be in fellowship with You and that our joy may be complete. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Are you the real deal? Are you who you say you are? We're in campaign mode here in Illinois. In fact, this week, uh, you're going to uh, uh, go to the ballot box and, and you are going to vote. And uh, we are being bombarded with a group of people who are saying, I'm the man or woman for the job. I know how to fix the troubles that ail us. I'm the real deal. But how do we know that they're the real deal? How do we know that they're going to do what they say they're going to do? How do we know that their desire isn't just to get another place of authority to uh, fill their pockets with greater cash and, and involve themselves in decisions, not to think of the welfare of the constituents that are in their district, uh, but just to feed themselves and, and to take care of themselves? How do we know that what they're saying is true? How do we know they're the real deal? It's hard to know these days, isn't it, when it comes to our politicians for those sports fans in our midst each year if you follow sports you you hear about something called the draft and you'll hear about all these college uh, uh, kids that are coming out and have all the potential in the world and the question will always be raised are they the real deal 
what they've done in high school, what they've done in college, will they accomplish it in the pros? Will they have what it takes to be what they say they're going to be? Are they going to be the real deal? And as we know, especially if you're a Bears fan or a Cubs fan, many times what we think is going to be the greatest player turns out to be a dud. How do we know if they're the real deal? For you parents of teenagers, your child, your son or daughter comes home and says they started hanging out with this uh, new person. And this new person you know very little about, but when you're around this uh, young man or young woman, uh, they say all the right things. Uh, They say please and thank you. Uh, That young man has wonderful manners. That young lady uh, just desires to talk with uh, your wife. And and it just seems like everything is just right. Uh, But then there's a part of you that says, is that the real deal? Am I seeing who this young person says they are? Are they who, are are they living out how they say they live out their lives? Are they a good example uh, for uh, my child? I could go on with incredible illustrations asking the question, are we the real deal? Are the people around us who they say they are? And the hard thing to do is to be able to know if they're telling the truth or not. So how do we know if politicians are really who they say they are? How do we know that athletes are going to be what we as uh, the fans want them to be? How do we know that that young person who's dating uh, our, our child is the real deal is seen in a careful examination of their walk? On the sports field, uh, we'll watch them. And it isn't so much the talk that gets us to the place of believing them, but it's what they accomplish on the field. For the politician, it isn't what they say in the commercials before the election, but it is how they govern after the election. It isn't the young person and how they interact with uh, you uh, and that first uh, opportunity you have in the living room to talk with them, but it's watching your child involve themselves and seeing them grow and seeing them live out a Christian life and seeing the example that that other uh, individual has in their lives. The proof is in the pudding. The talk isn't what is important, but it's the walk. First John is all about letting your talk match your walk. Making sure that what you say with your mouth is being lived out in the Christian life. Now John tells the group that he is the real deal. How does he explain that? Notice in verses 1 through 3 as a way of review. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. What is John saying? He's saying, I am the real deal, and the reason why I'm the real deal is I am proclaiming to you what the real Christ has said to me. I walked with Jesus. I talked with Jesus. I saw all the miraculous things that Jesus did. And my life hasn't been the same. I'm a different person because of Jesus. 
And as he articulates this, he gives us a summation of his life by saying, this is who I am. This is my message that I proclaim to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness. And so John had to live a different way. He had to live in the light. He had to live in the light of that which Jesus professed and spoke about. So the question is today, are you the real deal? Now I know you'll say, well, Tim, I, I prayed a prayer and, and I go to church and, and, and notice that, that nothing is said about that in our text this morning. But the question I have for you is what aspects of your life show a vibrant and healthy walk with Jesus Christ? What do you know about God's holiness and your sin that impacts the way that you live? What kind of fellowship do you have with God? When was the last time you talked with Him? When was the last time you opened His Word and just were revealed the greatness of who He is? How could you tell others that you are the real deal? What things would you say if someone said, are you really a Christian? What would your response be? Well, sadly, in our world today, we have a lot of pretenders. People who talk a good game but never live up to what they say. Now, American Christianity is known especially for this. In fact, pollsters take uh, polls all the time, and they assume that because people say they're born again, because of the amount of churches we have in America, one would assume that Christianity is alive and well in America. But in his book, The Bleeding of the Evangelical Church, David Wells says this, he reports that in 2003, pollsters said that 32% of all Americans considered themselves to be born again because of a, a spiritual prayer that they've prayed or a spiritual activity they've been a part of. But when asked about how they live out that profession of faith through a couple simple questions like, are you regularly involved in church? How often do you pray? Are you often in Bible study, in devotions? How often do you share your faith? Do you give? After those questions are asked, those who profess to be born again drops down to 8%. 24% of the group falls off. I've said the prayer. I profess a relationship with Jesus Christ, but the things that would characterize that life drop off. David Wells goes on to say, that if we were just asked just a couple more questions, it would seem that likely that number would go down to 2 or 3%. As Christians, we can fall prey to being pretenders. Well, the Scripture reminds us to be very careful of this. Paul tells us to test ourselves whether to see, or see whether or not we are in the faith. Peter tells us to make sure that we uh, do all that we can to make our calling and election sure. But how are we to do this? John gives us the answer in verses 6 through 10. John shows us what real deal Christianity is all about. What he's saying is the people of the first century, the people of Village Bible Church, don't be pretenders. Don't talk a good game and live a terrible life, but live the life in Christ that God has called us to. But what does that look like? Well, the real deal Christian, first of all, rejects the claims. It rejects the claims of others that are unbiblical. Write that down. It rejects the claims of others that are unbiblical. Now, in our text, John begins in verse 6 with three claims. 
And within these three claims are the three claims that false teachers were making. In this text, you're going to see five different times the phrase, if we. Now, he's doing this for two reasons. The first reason that he speaks about if we, and then he goes on with the claim, is that many commentators say that he's using the exact words of the false teachers. So let's look at what might have been the message that they had. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness. Verse 8. We claim to be without sin. Verse 10. We claim that we have not sinned. Now, commentators think that what John is doing is he's using the mantra of the false teachers. This is what they were claiming. Claiming they had not sinned. Claiming that they were not committing sin. Claiming that they've never sinned. And each of these, he's attacking uh, the message that the false teachers had come up with. But he's also speaking as a pastor. And as a pastor, he's saying, hey, church, be careful. If we say these things then there's a natural consequence. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We lie to ourselves and do not live by the truth. Uh, We make God out to be a liar. And so he's saying, okay, here is the message that the false teachers have come up with. But also remember that you may fall prey. And as a good pastor, not only does he attack the false teachers in their messages, but he also acknowledges the need to protect the flock. So then what must we reject? There are three claims that I want to look at in this first point. It's going to be the basis of of our message. We're going to sit here for a little bit, so bear with me. The first thing that we need to understand is that a real deal Christian must reject some claims. And the first one is, is that we must reject the idea that there's no consequence of sin. What that means is as believers, we have to acknowledge the consequence of sin. Notice what the text says the first claim articulates. If we claim, in verse 6, to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. The first thought is, is that these pre-Gnostic believers, Gnosticism, of course, we talked about was the belief uh, in the first uh, end of the first and second century, the idea that... Uh, uh, matter, uh, that which is the flesh and that which is the spirit, is divided. And that all matter, all flesh, is evil. And so the only thing that was really of any importance was the spirit, the soul. And so it didn't matter what you did with the body. This body was just a shell and it was evil already. There was no way to redeem it. And so what would happen is, is that you never worried about the body. And so as a result of that, a Gnostic's uh, pursuit in life uh, wasn't to try to live a disciplined and holy life, but he would live however he wanted to. But the pursuit of the Gnostic wasn't to walk in a way worthy of the Lord that Paul talks about, but it was to come up with this secret knowledge. The more I know about God, the more I understand about God, this idea, this myth that I can know the secret things of God, that which is what I will pursue. That is what I'm going to go after. And so these Gnostics believed in this division of men and it led to their lives. This doctrine always impacts lives. And so this line of thinking that comes is it says, hey, Christian in the first century, people of Village Bible Church, You can be a Christian and you can do whatever you want. You can tell people that you live in light. 
But you can live like a sinner. You can pursue sexual immorality. You can choose to say whatever you want. Your words can be as sinful as the devil. That's okay. You can have the most evil and vile thoughts that you want, and it's all right. Because those are being led by the body, the flesh, which is evil. And that doesn't really matter because there's a division between the flesh and the spirit. So live like you want. Pursue the lusts of the flesh in any way that you desire, but just make sure that the spirit isn't affected. I'll tell you, this line of thinking is true, truly at work in our day and age. We think that we can live as Christians however we want. We think that we can live however we want and yet still call ourselves believers. Any survey shows that, that evangelical Christians uh, watch the same things, read the same stuff, fall to the same sins, have the same rates of divorce and the same issues of broken families as unbelievers. What's the difference? The difference is we claim something. We claim to be in the light and yet we live in darkness. This is prevalent in our day and age. This is prevalent in our lives. This is prevalent even within our church that we can say that we have fellowship with God and yet live in darkness. What that means is that means I can do what I want on Saturday as long as I show up to church on Sunday. I can be a part of whatever I want throughout the week and just come and make sure that the people around me see me worshiping on Sunday. I want you to think about a practical implication. I was, I was thinking about this this last week. Uh, we went to the Fox Valley Mall uh, just to be able to walk around and, and, and get out of uh, the house because of the cold air and let the boys kind of run around. And I was thinking as I was walking along with my family, whom I say I have fellowship with, especially my wife, that what if my wife caught me looking at all the ladies walking uh, in the mall? And every time a young lady walks by, I turn my head and, uh, and take in the sights, if you will. And then after doing that, all that evening, I come home and I tell my wife, you know, I love you, honey. I love you. And you know, you're the only one for me. What do you think her response would be? Whammo. <laughs> and rightly so, right? Have you ever thought that that's what we do with God? We're walking and we say, I'm married to Jesus. Oh, and He walks with me and He talks with me. And we have this wonderful relationship with Jesus. And yet every time something that is contrary to that commitment, our head turns. And we start following and pursuing things. And yet we go and we tell everybody, I, I'm in love with Jesus. Are you kidding me? How can we show our love for Jesus when we live in the darkness? This is the problem with this kind of living. Far too many of us <clears throat> think that we can be chummy with Jesus, that we can be friends with Jesus and live any way that we want. This is where John is great. He works in, in incredible distinctions. He says you're living in darkness and darkness can't live in light. You're deceiving yourselves and you're lying to yourselves and God is in the truth. 
There's no middle ground, my friends, to what God uh, addresses as the true Christian life. And so if we think that our consequence for sin is that, hey, Jesus really doesn't care, he's not really worried about it, then we've got something else coming. This is not the case. Now notice, this fellowship with God is not just involving a singular sin. When we walk in darkness, that idea of darkness is the idea of all that which is opposed to God. The world and all in it, the culture and all the things that drive us to uh, pursue the things that are contrary to the holiness of God are the darkness. Not just the big sins. This isn't just adultery. This isn't just murder or rape. It's not just the big ones. This is just a, a, a mindless pursuit of the things of this world. That you're embedded in the darkness and there's no light in you. You're not pursuing the light. You're not living in the light. And therefore you say, you know what, I can live that way and I can still have a seat in Christ's church on Sunday and worship as if nothing has changed. But John says you can't live this way at all. Well, how do we know when this is happening in our lives? I want you to write these three things down along that side there. Be careful when there is no conviction of sin present in your life. Take warning that when you sin... The Holy Spirit isn't grieving your heart. and saying, boy, why am I doing that? Why am I pursuing those things? Number two, be careful if you have little or no desire to obey or please God. Do you have a heartbeat to obey God? Is there a part of you that says, Lord, here am I, send me? Is there a desire to say, Lord, whatever I must do, I want to please you in all that I do? Be careful if that's not the case. Finally, be careful if your life is not centered on biblical absolutes. Do you believe the Bible to be the Word of God? Do you believe sin to be sin and holiness to be holiness? If if it's some mangled understanding between the two, you've got a problem. Because you will begin to sin and not acknowledge that the consequence of sin is broken fellowship with God. The next claim. We need to accept the condition of sin. Notice verse 8. Verse 8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now this group isn't saying that we can sin and we can still have fellowship. This group claims to not have sin. It says that we have no sin. John combats the first century thought that people thought that there was no such thing as sin. Now this was a popular thought because of the influx of Greek philosophy that was intermingled with Christianity. And because of that philosophy, there was the thought that there was no such thing as sin, just ignorance. And I will tell you that as well. That second claim is alive and well today. Because we live in a world that says, hey, it's not that you're sinning, but again, it's your flesh, and you are not culpable for your actions. And so what does our world say? We go and we commit adultery. In fact, uh, the word around uh, television is talking about um, Tiger Woods. Of course, we've heard his escapades that are going on. And I was watching on TV and they had a doctor on and they said, Tiger couldn't have done it any differently. And the newscaster said, why? Because he's an addict. He has an addiction. 
And that, those escapades, were like a drug to him. Now, I love Tiger Woods. And I'm going to tell you and Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods isn't an addict. He's a sinner. And he pursued the lust of his flesh. And because of that, he destroyed his family. And because of that, he brought great um, uh, disappointment to many of his fans. Because of that, uh, if he had any relationship with Jesus Christ, that fellowship was broken because of his sin. Because of that, his life has come crumbling down. Not because he has an addiction, my friends, but because he fell to sin. We need to understand there is this thing called sin. Now, I believe in that there are disorders. I believe that there's need at time for for therapy and for uh, counseling to take place. But I will tell you that there is far too much therapy going on because your mom didn't hug you or your dad didn't say you he loved you. That there are too many Christians saying, well, that's why I beat my kids. That's why I don't love my wife. That is, And that's hogwash. That's utter hogwash. Be careful that you don't say that which is sin is just a condition of, of some sort of victimized situation that you've been a part of. The Greeks were great at it. You're not culpable for the things that you do. So throw it off to someone else. The reason why I'm a total jerk is because I had a bad grow, I had a bad time growing up. No, it's because you can't keep your temper in line. And you open your mouth and the most vile things come out of it, not because your mom and dad didn't love you. That's a great excuse, but because you as a grown individual don't know how to keep your mouth shut. And now I say that to you and I would say the same thing to myself. I had a great upbringing. But there are times that I just want to stick a couple dozen shoes in my mouth because sin, because I want to make people laugh, because I want to be entertaining. I say some of the stupidest things and it's because of sin. Can I get an amen? I'm not a victim. I'm a sinner. And we need to be careful that we don't fall to this claim that when we fall to sin, oh, that's not a sin. It's a dysfunction. It's not a dysfunction. It is a willful, disobedient step towards the darkness, not the light. Number three, we need to acknowledge the consequence of sin, accept the uh, condition of sin. And the final one is in verse 10. And in verse 10, we see uh, that we must admit our committing of sin. Now, this is the worst of all claims. In the first claim, we lie to ourselves, it says. In the second claim, we deceive ourselves. In this third claim, we say, hey, we're not committing sin. One of the most frustrating things as a parent is watching one of my sons do something that I've told them not to do, and I see him. I'm standing there, and I'm watching them do it. And I said, you stop doing that. I'm not doing anything. I'm watching you. Well, I'm not doing it. Are you kidding me? And that's what we do with God. In the first century, this is what people were saying. What they would do is they would redefine sin. And they would say, you know what? The flesh is evil. Only that which is spirit is eternal. So there's no such thing as sin. Come on. Did God say you can't do that? Does that remind you of something way back in the beginning? Did really God say you couldn't do this? Does God really mean that you can't do that? Well, if I do it, you know, it's just a little white lie. 
it's an emotional thing. You know, hey, I, sometimes you have to speak uh, forcefully and, and you have to speak the truth. Sometimes people need to hear the truth. And what we begin to do is we begin to tell God, it's not a sin. What I did wasn't sin. I didn't commit any sin. Now, notice with all of these, it speaks about deception. Notice in verse 6, when we claim to have fellowship with him, it says we lie and do not live by the truth. In verse 8, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, that's important. It's one thing to lie to ourselves, and we can do that. We can build a whole case on why we do the things that we do, and as a natural result of that, uh, we can uh, live through that lie and pursue the things of that lie. But that's where the truth of God's Word comes in. When it talks about the truth, it's talking about not only uh, the Word of God, but that which was revealed in Jesus Christ, that Word that appeared to us in verse 3, that which is eternal and everlasting. But here's the big kicker of the third claim. The third claim, we say, God, you're a liar. You're the one that's not telling the truth. And John has just established, he says that I am light, in me is no darkness. So we need to be very careful in this first point that we don't live a life that is in darkness while we portray that we live in the light. So what do we do? Point number two this morning. We need to respond to all aspects of life with Christ's likeness. Look at that statement. We need to respond to and repeat those next two words. All aspects of life. This isn't a Sunday morning Christianity. This is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week Christianity. We have to live a different way. We have to pursue Christ-likeness. We can't live in light half the time and live in darkness. If we walk in the light, verse 7 says, it isn't a foregone conclusion that you are a child of God and that you are going to walk in the light. What it's going to say is that your profession of faith is suspect. How can you say you're living in the light and everything that you pursue, everything that you do, shows that you live in darkness? But notice what is said in verse 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, how is that light measured? It's measured by God Himself. Remember verse 5, God is light, in Him there is no darkness. How can you walk in the light and be in the light as He is in the light if you live in darkness? If, verse 5 says, in Him is no darkness. We have to be light. We have to live as light. I love the book by Robert Munger. Write this down if you're looking for a very easy read, something that gives out some profound truths. Robert Munger wrote a book called My Heart, Christ's Home. And it's the analogy of a new, uh, a person that's just recently bought a home. And as they're uh, engaging in their new life in the home, the idea is, is that our heart is like a home. There are many rooms within our heart. And the amazing thing is, is for the most part, your house is, is pretty clean. And for the believer, most of our rooms in our heart are clean. But there are a couple of those closets. You know what I'm talking about. Those closets that when someone says, hey, we're going to stop by and bring you a meal, all the garbage goes into those closets. And you, you just tell all the kids, don't go near those closets because they'll, they'll open up and all our garbage will come out. But boy, the family room looks nice. The dining room looks nice. The bedrooms look nice. But there's that closet. 
And you see, we show the family room on Sunday mornings. How are you doing? Great. How's your walk with Jesus? Wonderful. Don't go over there. Don't go to that closet. Why? Because that's where we put all our garbage. And Robert says that all of our heart needs to be in light. Not just some of the rooms. We need to live in the light, not 99.9% of the time, but all of the time. Well, what does it involve? First of all, it involves walking in the light. How do we live in Christ like this? It means walking in the light. If we walk in the light, what does that mean? There's a couple things. There's a contrast. Either we're walking in light or we're walking in darkness. I've already spoken about that, so I won't talk much about that. But it isn't something we do once for all. It's a continual walk. Write that down. The word walk is found in the present tense. And because of this present tense, it says it's an ongoing thing. We are always walking in the light. More literally said, uh, this verse would say, but if we keep on and continually on walking in the light. If we're going to walk in the light, it can't be just Sunday. If we're going to walk in the light, it can't just be in certain areas of our life. But it must be an ongoing thing. It can't just be a church thing. It has to be a work thing. It can't just be a family thing. It has to be an outreach thing. It can't be just part of my life. It has to be all of my life. It can't be just that I walked in the light when I was a young person and now I can live how I want to. It is an ongoing thing. If we continually walk in the light, that is what God is calling us to. It's a continual walk. Notice it's a clean walk. If we walk in the light as He is in the light. Well, who's He? It is He in verse 5 that in Him there is no darkness. If we're going to walk in the light, then we will have fellowship and we will be purified. If we walk in the light, we can't live in the darkness. If we're going to walk in the light, we can't flirt with the darkness when we're in the light. This means that we are called to turn from all types of ungodliness and follow Christ's example. We can't live a double life. We can't pursue the things of this world and say, I am walking with Jesus. But sadly, we will leave this place looking all clean and all wonderful, talking about how great our relationship with Jesus Christ is. And what will happen is we will go home and we will live for the next six days in darkness. It's a clean walk. It's a continual walk. This walk also is one that's with the Lord. We walk in the light as He is in the light. This is a walk with Jesus. This isn't religion. Nowhere does it say go to church Nowhere does it say, hey, uh, be a part of small groups or anything like that. It says this is a walk with God. It's a walk with Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 4.1 that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. Jesus has called us out of darkness and brought us into his wonderful light. And now we must live in that light. Yet sadly, many of us are content with our part-time Jesus. And this is why we don't find victory over our sin. This is why we can't find joy and contentment. So, what do we do? Well, you say, Tim, this walk you're talking about, you're saying perfection. This is perfection. No, it's not perfection. Notice what the text says, our third point. Because this Christ-like walk, this real deal Christianity, is a life that receives the cleansing from sin. Notice what uh, verse uh, 8 says. I'm sorry, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us 
and to cleanse us or purify us from all unrighteousness. I want you to hear me very clearly this morning. A real and vibrant faith is a faith that is flawed with sin. A real faith is one that is flawed with sin. Paul says in Romans 7, the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. He says, I'm struggling with this. I don't want to sin. I don't want to pursue the ungodly things in my life. And those are the things that I gravitate towards. And Paul was one of the greatest saints to walk on the face of the earth. And he was flawed. He was flawed to the core because he carried around sin. And so don't think that I got to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect. A real deal Christian is a bona fide sinner. One who falls to real temptations and real sin. One that even has certain sins that they find themselves habitually falling into. But the question isn't do you sin? The question is when you sin, what do you do? A real deal sinner, a real deal Christian knows he's a sinner and he knows what to do when he sins and it involves a couple of things. First of all, a confrontation with sin. A real Christian is one who's concerned about sin. Who knows that his sin, uh, because of what Scripture says, defiles his relationship with God. A real deal Christian is one who understands that his fellowship with God is broken. A real deal Christian is confronted with his sin because the Spirit of God is at work in him and convicts him of that unrighteousness. It confronts him because the darkness cannot be in the light. And the light exposes that sin and says, get rid of that. Ask for forgiveness of that. Walk away from that. Number two, it involves a confession of sin. This real deal Christianity is to go and not only be confronted because you're walking in the light as he is in the light, but when there's darkness that comes into you, Because of your sin, you confess it. The word confess there in the Greek literally means to agree with. And so what you're saying is when you confess sin, God, I am sorry that I've sinned. And I understand that this sin is an affront to you. I agree with you that it's garbage and I want nothing to do with it. That's what confession of sin is. It's an agreeing with. A sinner, uh, one who's a real deal Christian is a sinner who understands the need for grace who pursues grace and mercy and says, without you, God, I can do nothing. Without you, I will fall to every sin. Without grace in my life, without the Holy Spirit in my life, I, Tim Bedall, will do the things that I just talked about Tiger Woods doing. If it were not for God's grace, I'm a sinner and I need Him every step of the way. It involves confession. It involves cleansing. What happens when we deal with this sin? Does God reprimand us and send us away? No. It says He forgives us. But you know what? I love what the word uh, forgive there literally means in the Greek. It means to send away. But it's not that He sends us away. What does He send away? Our sin. He says, be done with it. Walk away. I'm getting rid of it. And He cleanses us. It means to purify. This is a promise. 1 John 1 Nine should be a verse that we wear out as Christians. That page should be halfway crinkled and ripped because we keep going back to that promise and saying, I confess my sin, Father. I confess it because I need to be righteous in your sight. I confess it because I don't want this issue of sin in my life. Those that are not real deal Christians, those that aren't pursuing a vibrant walk with Jesus are those that say, who cares about sin? I'm just going to continue to live the life 
that I want. And I will tell you, you are playing a game with God. So let me close. And let me ask you this question before you put your stuff away. Are you a pretender this morning? Do you talk a good game? What in your life do you see as evidence of a changed life? How do you deal with your sin? What does your fellowship look like with Christ? Do you see the light? Or if you look back this last week, do you see a lot of darkness? And if that's the case, aren't you glad you can go to Jesus? That you can confess your sins, that He's faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you? In closing, let me read this wonderful story to you. In the 18th century, a head priest was disciplining two monks for some infraction that they had committed against the rules. He imposed on them the rule of silence. They could not talk to one another and they were barred to their room that they had together. They tried to figure out some way to fill the long hours of silence. Finally, one of them gathered 28 flat stones from the courtyard. Putting different numbers on them, he devised a new game. By using gestures, the man agreed on certain rules. But the most difficult part was keeping silent when one of them scored a victory. Then they remembered that they were permitted to say aloud the prayer, Dixist, Dominos, Domino, Meo. By using the one word in this Latin expressing the meaning of the word Lord, the winner was able to signal his triumph by yelling, Domino! The monks gave the impression that they were praying, but really all they were doing was playing. And that's how the game of dominoes came into existence. Are you playing with God this morning? Are you saying to God and to others, I'm living in the light while pursuing the darkness? If you're playing a game with God, you make Him out to be a liar and the truth of God is not in you. Let's get right with God. Let's be real deal Christians so that we can be the light in the world of darkness that God has called us to. Let's pray. Father, what a tough message. It's not easy to hear these words. Father, You've known my heart. I so many times pursue darkness. I don't want to, but I do. I don't know what it is within me. The sin nature that attacks me that shows me the things that I know that are wrong, but I pursue. and I don't care about what the consequences are. And Lord, yet I proclaim Your Word on a Sunday morning. How broken I was this week to have to work through that. And so Lord, I don't stand here in judgment of anyone else, but I stand in judgment by myself. I say I live in the light. I say I have fellowship with God. But there are so many times that I live in darkness. Expel that from me. Give me the needed power in the Holy Spirit. Give me the discipline to say no to sin and worldly lust and to pursue You in Your righteousness. Because it is then and only then that Your Scripture says that we'll find joy, that we'll find contentment, that we'll truly find forgiveness of sins. Lord, for each person here, we're all sinners. We all are in need of a Savior. But I'm so glad that in verse 9, we can go to You. When we're unfaithful, You're faithful. When we're unrighteous, You're righteous. When we are dirty, You are clean. And because of that invitation that each person here today can go to Jesus and can find the forgiveness that is needed in their time of need. 
Let us approach that throne of grace with confidence this morning. In the quietness of the place we are today, that Lord, today, right now, we would ask for forgiveness. For the things of the darkness that we have pursued. For the sins that we have gone after. That now, as as we quiet our hearts, we would hand them to you. So that we could find forgiveness in our time of need. We need your grace. We're thankful for your mercy. Now, Lord, I pray that you would lead us out of this place to live in the light as you are in the light. That your light would shine in our speech, that it would shine when we're with people, that it would shine when we're by ourselves, that it would shine at work and in our schools, that it would shine in our church. Begin to light us up as we live in the light so that others may see Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen.